Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. When, when you were like in elementary school and middle school and high school, did you did your school have science fairs? Yes, we did. Do you, do you remember any of the projects you did? I totally do. Oh, well, tell me about one. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is one. And this will tell you something about my dad, who I don't know if my dad is a regular listener, but if if, if he's listening to this one, this one's for you, Dad. Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. <laughs> my dad um, helped me with a an award-winning, and I, I helped is in, like, my dad did a great science fair project <laughs> <laughs> when I was in... I think the third grade, Mm -hmm. yes, I know it was the third grade, he and I, mostly he, did a science fair project on, um, like, on, oh, on, like, aerodynamics, and so it involved hanging two ping pong balls and then blowing between them, and then the ping pong balls come together to explain flight, but what third grader is going to think of that? Um, and uh, 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 like my third grade teacher for years, like, I, cause I grew up in this town for years, I would see him and be like, that was the most amazing science fair project I've ever seen. And I, <laughs> I felt guilty about it for it's years. It's as though you discovered flight or could have. <laughs> exactly. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I once spoke on the phone, sh- briefly, to the prize man from one of the early seasons of The Bachelor. <laughs> I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm an author, professor, historian, and my all-time perfect Friday night revolves around watching The X-Files, seasons one through five, of course. Terrifying and the best. Today, <laughs> we're all about science and religion. Where do they meet and where do they diverge? We're watching the multi-award-winning documentary, The Science. Fair, starring an ensemble cast of beautifully geeky and awkward high schoolers trying to win the world's top school science fair prize. We interviewed Devin Stahl, bioethicist at Michigan State University, about the way that liberals and conservatives think about science and about what's trendy and difficult in bioethics these days. In the Kitsch Corner, we take a virtual visit to the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. And we uneducatedly try to talk about Lucy, the primeval ape or human or transitional figure fossil. We go there. Join us. Join us. <laughs> and um, it didn't dawn on me until I was an adult that I was like, oh, I did not do that project for real. Do you ever think to yourself, what if the what if the world just came to a collapse and it were just up to you and you alone to recreate any kind of technology <laughs> that I think that sometimes I'd and be I, so and I up wonder a creek. what I could come up with. There's a book um, called White Noise by Don DeLillo, famous late uh-huh. 20, late 20th century work of classic postmodern fiction and there's a conversation between two characters in that book where they, you know, one of the characters says to the other like um you know what would happen if you went back to the ancient world? Like, do you actually think you'd have anything to teach them? Or, you know, and he's like, yeah, I would. Da, da, da. He's like, what? You'd tell them, they'd be like, well, where are you from? And you'd be like, I'm from the future. We have all kinds of stuff. You know, we have radios and da, da, da. And they'd be like, okay, make a radio. Make a radio. Make a radio. Yeah, no. I and would you'd be, be like, oh, well, other people know how to do, you know, like. <laughs> I see. I've thought about this, like, I haven't gone this far back, but I've thought about this in regards to the Oregon Trail, mm. you know, because um, I'm from this area, the Oregon Trail ends in Oregon City. Shout out to Oregon City. That's why it's called the Oregon Trail, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I would be a total disaster. I'd be like dysentery death, you know, day two <laughs> or whatever. The only skill I would have would be to be like the school marm, 
you know? Mm. So yes, I have thought about this, but not as far back. <laughs> like the wagons stop at the pass and you're like, get your kids over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it's time for the children. lesson. Time for the lesson. <laughs> yeah. But now um, explain to me your science fair project. Have you ever done one? Do you remember it? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I was part of, you know, my school did science fairs. I was, so my parents did not do the projects, did okay. not participate. That's probably better. I have, and, two, you know. I have two that I remember. One very vaguely. <laughs> And another one, much more specifically, um, the one I vaguely remember, I think it was in like first or second or third grade, really young. And I think for the science fair project, I got like some paper that was like notebook paper from like an old spiral bound notebook. Uh-huh. And I wrote kind of like some words on it from like a story or something that I had. And I sort of like tried to smudge it with like dirt and tear the edges so that it looked really old. Oh, and that, cute. And then that, you became a And that was scholar. the project. Now you're gonna, Now the other one, was it occurred it's a little history for for everybody a little throwback and i had a partner for this one his name oh. was tim uh if you're out there tim i hope you remember this because this tim. was great um in my basement tim and i worked together so we were in fifth grade and i remember this vividly because fifth grade was like a big year for me okay why i don't know it's just i you Did know you grow a lot in that year Yeah, maybe i think you know it's just like you spend your whole elementary school experience working your way up through the ranks you know what i'm saying <laughs> And then you get to fifth grade. <laughs> you know, I didn't have that experience because I was really, 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 really short. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it never felt like I w- worked my way yeah. anywhere. Keep I was, going. I keep was going. really tall. <laughs> and me and Tim, Tim and I worked together in my basement. And here's the science fair project we created. Now, here's the history. Okay. It, this was during Gulf War One. Oh, interesting. Yes, kids. That go, that Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, kind of just that general that was ball of wax. <laughs> That's round two and three and so on of right. a conflict that was sort of began in the 1990s, um, more or less, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And we, the project that we did is we had a piece of plywood. Okay. And we had some sand and like we sort of like had glue and we kind of put some sand on the board and we kind of put up some, I had like army men, like those plastic oh, molded man. army men. Uh-huh. And that was it. But what's what's sciencey about that? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing at all. It wasn't a science project. We just, but that's what we did, and we were like, and you took it to the science fair. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I know, right? You're like, and then I ended up as a biblical. And then I did, yeah. I just, you know, so it was never, it was never my thing. You went into the right field. I think that's that's clear. Yeah, I just we got I got out of science. I love science though, which is why today, of course, to the bridge. Yeah, we're talking about. In fact, this time we're t- we're getting a little more specific than we've been in this season two episodes, where we've talked usually about a constellation of media pieces or movies. This time we're watching just one thing, and if you didn't watch it, that is totally okay. We'll explain it. You mm-hmm. can still hang out with us here, but totally would recommend this. It's yes. worth every penny you spend on it. It's called the Science Fair, um, a multi award winning documentary about. Basically, the world's most prestigious science fair for high schoolers. Um, yes. It's won like all these audience award, uh, awards at film festivals. It won best family film at a particular film festival. So this is something like I had my nine-year-old daughter and my five-year-old daughter watch this with me. Oh, did they pay attention the whole time? Yes. They oh were my riveted. This, riveted. This film, in my mind, the word that kept coming back to, to me throughout the film was adorable. Oh, it was just like the geeky beauty of these kids. Oh, yeah. So the the oh, it just makes you want to cry and nothing even happens. You're just looking at them. Oh, yeah. So the the film directors, they they profile, I think it's like nine high school students. Maybe it's a little less than that. 
from all over the world Mm -hmm. who have been selected or they kind of profile them as they're being selected or maybe right after they've been selected to to attend this fair. And it's like, I think they say it's like 1,700 young scientists. It's a big group. Come together. So it's huge and it's very, apparently it's very prestigious if you're in that world. I mean, I I know nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to say other than you fall in love with these children. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. I think the the big science fair they're all working toward is called the ISEF. It's the acronym ISEF, like the International Science and Engineering Fair or something like that. Something like that. It's, it's, this is like completely outside of at least my world. Mm-hmm. It's in the STEM, you know, yeah, yeah. realm. And, and I don't really spend much time there. Um, but it is, um, the most beautiful little portrayal of oh. these young people's lives who, um, s- some of them are like, actually surprisingly cool in their high school context. I was kind of surprised. Not many. Most of them are like the stereotypical geeky. (laughs) Did you have a favorite of any of the characters? Oh, yes. I mean, so there are some spoiler alerts here, but, you know, just hang in there with us. Uh, I mean, so so the the girl from Bangladesh who ends up winning in her category. She's my absolute favorite. Come on. I I almost cried every time I saw her on. on the screen. What a sweetheart. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Like just how so my so my Kashfia, fa- I think was Kashfia, her name. yes, yeah. Kashfia. So this is a girl in a school which is like a sports obsessed high school. In, anyone, anyone in, out there <laughs> go in to a sport? Working South Dakota, so like middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. I mean, these are basically all of America's American high schools are sports obsessed. But like there are some that are worse than others. And this high school, I mean, they portray this high school just accurate. Like the football team isn't even very good. In fact, oh, they yeah, barely win a game. But, but they have like three to five gyms. Three to five gyms. Their whole school is oriented <laughs> around this. And I mean, this girl. Kashfia had actually gone to like the finals or came in third internationally the year before they filmed this and like the school never mentioned it. And they they go around the cafeteria and they ask kids, do you know who this is? Do you know that she won this award? And yeah. nobody knows anything about it. Yeah, like who's it? Kashfia? I mean, like in a school like that in, in, in the Dakotas, which is probably predominant, you know, predominantly white, and uh-huh. you've got a girl from Bangladesh there, um, you know, wearing a hijab and... You know, how could they not know who she is, but they didn't know who she was. And then, so she goes, she rockets, she has this amazing thing. She wins. And then the postscript in the film, just like a tearjerker, but raises righteous anger in you, oh, yeah. which is namely that the school never recognized her victory in any way, never announced it, never displayed it, nothing. Oh, and she, I have to say, she was my favorite character, not not just because, okay, so th- there, are, there are several different kinds of students they they profile. Mm-hmm. So they're the, and I'm dividing them up into two parts of my mind. There are some that come from like the powerhouse prestigious schools. Right. Um, and like there's one school um, in Kentucky that is like mm-hmm. the school to right. go to. Right. And and there, I think there are four students that they profile from that school. And they're great. I mean, they're, they're a lot of fun. They're really interesting students. Um, but then there are also the, like the wild card students who go to like no name schools right. Or like this young woman um, go to a school that had absolutely no value in. I mean, like, so the per- I think her faculty sponsor or like her teacher sponsor is the football the coach. football coach. He was who the only nothing about what he she's was doing. the only one who would basically work with her on this thing. He volunteered. I mean, her you know she has he seems a, sweet. I mean, her dad <laughs> is like a professor of some kind of science field, and so obviously uh-huh. she has you know a, f- a familial support. But oh, how about all these stories though too 
about, um, you know, I think there was an implicit story there, which was not always explicit in the documentary about immigrant families. Oh my gosh. And the way, and just like what they're facing, there was a, a you know, and, and internationally too. I mean, they profiled some international, you know, there's a kid from Germany who ends up, you know, that was, that was my youngest daughter, Junie. That was her favorite oh. in the middle. As soon as she saw him, she just fell in love with him. Like this geeky he boy. He did seem very sweet. And he ended up, you should have seen Junie's face. Like when he won at the oh, end. Oh my gosh. She went crazy. I know that we're, so we're just like gushing about we're this film right now. <laughs> but no, I want to pick up because I'm glad you brought up the immigration theme, the immigrant theme, because one of the, um, I was really struck by all the wonderful teachers that you kind of meet oh, along yeah. the way. Like there are these teachers who are just pouring their lives into their students. It's really beautiful. But there's one, this one woman who is, um, she's uh, got a PhD and I can't remember what her field is in. She's a scientist, but yeah. um, her parents are immigrants from Jamaica and Panama. Yes, that Jericho High School. Yeah, one of the kind yeah, of powerhouse yeah. high yeah. schools. Yeah. And she uh, she had this great quote. Um, let's see. You look at how many of our scientific accomplishments that have come from people who are not American born. Oh, yeah, I remember And then that. she's yeah. like, I mean, and she lists all these inventions. And Yeah, things about your daily life, like not just like molecular pie in the sky stuff, like shoelaces like and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. It was so inspiring. It was very. I know. They did a really good job with that theme. You know, but to, okay. So toward the end, to turn a little bit of a corner here, there was kind of, the, the film is not not very political, not pushy at all. I mean, no, the kids are no. the kids are truly center stage and it's just about their cuteness. They're, they show like a dance. They have oh a dance at this thing. And they're the biggest dorks. My, they're my so daughter's cute. Nova was like covering her eyes. Like she didn't even want to watch it. It was so, it was just so awkward to see them like out there dancing, but I, it was very cute. Well, wait, they have, about the dance. Yes. There's this one scene where I saw this girl. She's probably like 15 or 16 now today. Yeah. She's literally doing the Macarena. Yes. So in I did. My I, I remember mind, that. I remember that. I was like, I that was, was like, popular oh, when no. I was in high school. Do she not. learned that from her parents. She learned that from her parents. Yes. Okay. That um, was cringy. The film is not very political moments like that. But toward the end, there is like one thing that comes up and then ends up kind of causing a reflection back, I think, on the documentary as a whole. Namely, yeah. someone at the end is just, you know, one of the teachers or somebody's commenting. They're like, I don't know. We just live in such a strange time in America, and maybe it's not really a time. Maybe it's it's always been America. When he's like, we just why do we hate science in this country? Oh, why yeah. do people hate science? Why is there this anti science? And to me, it just even led to even bigger things. I don't know how far afield we want to get here, but just like this question, and I mean, I think Leah, you'd be great to talk about this. Just thinking about American religious history, like why do Americans hate experts? We love experts, though. We have tons of experts, yeah. but we also hate, do we hate experts more than like any other modern country, contemporary country? That's a great question. I'll answer that in brief, and then I want to flip that around to you because yeah. I have another question okay. related to Americans and science and the Bible and mm. stuff. So um, I think that we do have a a certain streak that goes all the way back to the beginnings of the American Republic, which is a rejection of authoritarian figures historically, rejecting authoritarian and an anti-institutional right. bent, right? Like get out of here, Britain. Yeah. Like, well, even the impulse to say like self-rule, we're gonna right. self-govern, yeah. that is a little bit odd, you know, in its historical context. And so this idea that we're gonna throw off, like, you believe in the divine right of kings. No way, man. We're just going to elect this guy. We right? said like, no. <laughs> yeah. And by we, I mean like, you know, yeah. property holding men of European descent. But so, it ex got expanded as I'll, years went I'll by. I'll say we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be that, I'd be that guy. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I think within, and then also in the, the 20th century, there's like this rise in professionalism. And on the one hand, people are glorifying it. But then the, on the other hand, we also have this streak of populism, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, we kind of tend to glorify people who are, of the people who denigrate expertise in the, in 
favor of like a horse sense, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, I may not, I'm not, may, I may not be professionally trained, but my instinct or my gut tells me right. blah, blah, blah. Right. So I think, yeah, that's, that's like a forever yeah, yeah, yeah. problem. <laughs> I had an English teacher who, and this is like an American literature kind of introduction class. She said, she said, it, she was, a, she was a hilarious teacher. She was really good. Um, and she said, you know, do you know what American's favorite word is? The most American word in English. <laughs> what? Is the word no. <laughs> Just no. Yeah, you, you know what you're talking is. about? No, you don't. We're basically no. like a giant two-year-old. Yeah, which is no. <laughs> no. That's what my two-year-old yeah. is always saying. And in answer to anything, you want a popsicle? He loves popsicles. Yeah. No. And then he's like, wait, yes, I do. <laughs> um, okay, so my question for you is like, what is it about Americans and the Bible and science that that like creates this kind uh, of tense relationship between like yeah. traditional or maybe non-traditional Christian ideas and the Bible. Like, how do you handle that in the classroom? Oh, what man. are your thoughts? It's so difficult. I think it's one of these things that just creates like this tension all the time. Like if you, and I mean, in the Bible, of course, the science issue is evolution and Genesis mm-hmm. one through 11 and how evangelicals in particular have had like this kind of like very difficult journey with, with those chapters in the Bible and with science, of course. I, if I could just use an analogy on the side. So Mark Knoll, major American, American religious historian. Oh, yes. Big and name. a Vanderbilt alum. Vanderbilt alum. Okay. Go yeah. Um, currently, I think, or retired from maybe at Notre, Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. Um, has a book called The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. And he talks about slavery. Um, why was it? Why did it take so long for just a group of Bible-loving Christians to ban slavery? Come on, people. Get with the times. You know, like, let the moral light shine upon you. Right. Well, he says... I mean, at the heart of the book, at the heart of his argument in a particularly weighty passage that I remember very well from the book, he says, look, it's like this. The case for slavery in the Bible is very clear, actually. Like there are many verses about people owning slaves and how to own slaves. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Boom, there you go. The case against slavery, which clearly won the day, thankfully so, um, is actually a very nuanced case. Right. It's something that you have to say, well, you have to look at the trajectory and Paul says in Galatians, there's neither, you know, male nor female, slave nor free. And well, wait a minute, what does that actually mean? And it's kind of something that has to unfold itself maybe as an argument through time. It's synthetic. And he says, I mean, this is, you know, this is what he says. Um, Look, he's like, Americans, we don't want to, we don't want a complex synthetic argument. Americans love a punch in the gut Tell me what it is. It just says it plainly. And so I think one of the difficulties in, in teaching about this stuff is like, well, the Bible doesn't talk about science. You can, you can, however, you can talk about science really intelligently, as many people do, with the Bible along with right, it. Right. But you ha- it's like a synthetic thing. Like you you go into like Psalm 139 and you talk about being wonderfully knit in your mother's womb and all this stuff. And you think about just like the intricacies of DNA, and you can do that. But it like takes a few leaps, you know, mm-hmm. or you could even, I mean, people do, I'm not advocating this or making fun of it. I'm just putting like people, people talk about evolution in the Bible all the time. Like, oh, Genesis has, you know, one thing's coming after other things and the seven days, you know, it's, it's all very sequential. Mm-hmm. It's not everything at the exact same time. So clearly there you have a model for life and various kinds of species and things, you know, the analogy isn't perfect, but developing over time that versus just saying, Nope, it just God said it, made it on this day, boom. And so I think, so I end up, you know, in some ways, because I'm not a scientist when I teach in the classroom, I end up talking about what I know about, which is namely ancient creation stories. And so (laughs) it's, you know, we talk about something like maybe the Enuma Elish, the ancient Babylonian creation story, which is a very different story from Genesis 1, but which many scholars think or suspect the authors of Genesis 1 probably knew about. And so we have a story in Genesis 1 that's maybe even consciously very different. And so 
taking it back into that kind of setting and asking people to imagine very different kinds of worldviews has been my way of doing it. But I've always kind of dreamed of having a much more better, a much more robust, better conversation between science and faith, science and religion. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, I think the Civil War slavery comparison is a really great one because it gets at this idea that it's not just Christians in the Bible discerning these things like science and um, the, the notion of equality, those are also Enlightenment values, which um, are not not to say that those are detached from Christianity. I mean, you could never disentangle those two things. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea that like it's this modern kind of 18th century ideal about the equality between human beings, which of course, you know, initially is pretty narrowly applied and then it gets, you know, broader as different groups start kind of laying claim to that. But then also this idea of empiricism and scientific knowledge is a relatively new human concept. So if you're trying to read the Bible, which is very, very, very pre-modern with these like kind of the height of modern lenses, it's it's not going to be this smooth ride because it's like sure. totally different audiences, sure. ways of, of knowing. And some of those authors found ways, you know, too, like you can with science, mutatis mutandis, people like Hobbes and, and Hobbes's Leviathan. Was that published in like 1651? That's a date that comes to my mind. That might be the wrong date. Kids, wow, don't I'll put, be super don't, impressed Don't put that right. on your book report, kids. Look that up on the internet right now. I was like, okay, so Hobbes' Leviathan and maybe 1651. I mean, most of that, and this is a book, you know, it's one of these books at the birth of modern political theory. He's talking about the Bible. Right. For most of it. I mean, people don't read those parts because they're in the middle and they're super boring, but like he's trying to show <laughs> that like Moses and the style of government was kind of like da 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 da. And he, you know, people are people still were bound to the Bible, you know, right. and but they were finding ways. They were often maybe they were tortured ways, maybe they were synthetic ways, but they were ways to make the text relevant to you know what emerged. So I think even I mean this is not against what you just said. It's just saying there was that kind of nuance there even where and people like Spinoza. Well, you know they yeah, were obsessed with it still. Because the Bible was like a a um lingua franca, right? Like it's like yeah, a language that exactly. everyone understands and everyone can talk about, which I think that in many ways people who are hoping science, like scientific language right, and empiricism right. could operate in the same manner. Right. But it, I don't know about you, but I walked away from this um, with the idea that actually, no, that's not really happened. Like these young students are very exciting. And I, it's like, I thought it was an ode to scientific optimism. It was beautiful. Yes. It was just yes. like, you know, there there's a student. She was another one of my favorites. I think Milena um, from Brazil. Oh, yeah. The Brazilian. Her, oh, no. The, oh, I actually, I would say that they were my favorites. They were amazing. Uh, yeah. They, uh, from like this... When like you see their hometown, town. oh, the country town in Brazil, oh and, and just what it took for them, and their teachers are crying, talking about oh, them leaving. The, teachers the first time they'd ever teachers. left the country, I think. Yes, and the mom, when she talked about, there's Jesus, and then there's my daughter. And yeah, like, I, yeah. I mean, like it, it's, they are this beautiful young duo. Um, she, uh, she was the more outgoing one and the more kind of like the public face one. But um, when she, oh, what was it that she... She's doing Zika research, right. and they're trying to like right. end the Zika virus, which is you know what's more noble work than right. that. It's, it's just really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But even them, like the, these students who are trying to do these amazing things, you you sort of get this idea like I, you're not sure how the general public is going to receive them. Mm-hmm. Like not just their high school, you know, with like the popular kids and all that kind of stuff, but you know, what's their future? Like, will there be this common language where we appreciate this type of work? I don't know. What did you think? Well, to see, I mean, you know, 
all of this stuff about, you know, Gen Z, iGen, all these, you know, the millennials and younger, you know, what hope is there? What a bunch of losers. Like to watch <laughs> a film like this, just a total uh, antidote to that way of thinking. Heartwarming. Because you see essentially just the vibrancy and the creativity and the organization and just stuff that these kids have. And you realize probably in different measures and in different ways, every generation has this. Oh, yeah. Has this mind, has this beauty, and and now they're doing it. And so, I don't know, in a way, I kind of, I left the film feeling like I'm in good hands. Me too. All right. Hi, weirdos. Um, today we are talking with Dr. Devin Stahl, Assistant Professor of Clinical Ethics at Michigan State University and author of Imaging and Imagining Illness. We are so excited to have you with us, Dr. Stahl. Welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. <laughs> We're excited to talk about your work, you know, just as a scientist. I mean, I know that you, you're you a specialist in things that probably few of us can understand really well, but you know, we're, we're we're so into this religion and science thing that that we have to talk to you. So we're so excited. Yeah, and Excellent. one question that we had right off the bat was um, something that we've talked about together is the the connection between liberal and fundamentalist Christians and science. Liberals and conservatives seem to have different responses to the inner, like how science and religion relate to one another. And we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you know about why that's the case and how that came to be. Sure. Yeah. So some of the work that I'm doing now is on the history of the Human Genome Project, which doesn't sound like it'd get you, you know, all the way back to the scientific revolution, but it does. <laughs> Take oh, us there. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In part because what the scientific revolution brought about besides things like the empirical method you know, really observing and that being fundamental to science. Whereas before that time, it was really like, what is our theology and metaphysics that's going to help us understand the world? And this sort of empirical stuff wasn't nearly as important because maybe you couldn't trust your um, eyes and, and your senses to sort of tell you things about the world because, of course, we lived in a fallen world. And mm. so that could be deceptive. Um, but around the time of the scientific revolution, things really changed to this um, more empirical model. Um, and and that sort of brings us up to a, a point where Darwin is actually trying to reverse that again. So religion had kind of gotten on board with that. And a lot of the scientific revolution was really spurred on by um, religious people who were trying to better understand the world so they could better understand God, that those things were really intimately connected. Wait, can I, and, can I, can I, can I interrupt you here? So you're sure. saying, you're saying Christians, got, did, religious people generally did get on board with the idea that, Hey, our senses, we can trust our senses. They can tell us real things about the world. You're saying that that went over. Okay. It went over okay as long as you were really humble about it and you did experiments <laughs> really carefully and you had a cloud of witnesses around you. Oh, so, so okay. If you think about the scientific method, it resembles a lot of traditional religion. You need the witness there. So you and it has to be reproducible and oh, things like that. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Darwin comes into the yeah, picture. Yeah, what happens then? What changes? Well, so with Darwin, you can imagine you, you can't actually empirically test a lot of evolution, right? Right. So it um it was some of it was pretty controversial at the time. And there were certain groups of religious people who thought, no, we liked the older model. We're not so sure about this newer model. Um, but actually, for the most part, religion was not against Darwin at the beginning. It was really only when Darwinism began um, being taught in public schools that some people started raising alarms. So it's an interesting history. Wow. Okay. So, you, so basically, you're saying 
early 20th century is when that really became problematic. So when it became like, which makes sense because anytime you're going to say like the youth, um, (laughs) anything that affects the youth, people are going to get up in arms about. Um, So what are, have you worked at all with kind of the different responses that have existed within like the medical community to this, this uneasy relationship between specifically Christians, I think we're talking about, but religious people in general in in science? Yeah. So they're uh, around that same time in the 20th century, you got this like myth of conflict um, that, that religion and science had always been in conflict and that, um, that that's why you saw it rising up in this particular way, but that from the history of time, there was this thing called religion and there was this thing called science. Uh-huh. Neither of those things is true. Um, but, but it sort of got bolstered up as this has always been in conflict. And so I think that some of that still lingers. I mean, good religious historians will know that that's not the case, but I think that lingers in both religious communities and scientific communities that maybe there has always been this struggle and we're now only realizing how much of a conflict it was. Okay. I'm going to be like, I got to flip the script on you, Professor Stahl, and I'm going to be like (laughs) the professor giving you a quiz of one question, true or false. Okay. Is this statement (laughs) true or false? Okay. Christians don't care about science at all. They don't care about technology at all. They don't care about its limits, its transgressions. They don't care about any of these things. And in fact, they never really did. It was all just maybe like some flim flam kind of stuff. But really, it's like, yeah, I trust science. Science can deliver me a car. I can go places. Fine. Oh, look, we can talk on a phone. Fine. Oh, look, I get a heart transplant. Fine. The only issue that particularly, and and I'll narrow it, the only issue that particularly conservative Christians have ever cared about is evolution. And it has to do with essentially problems about reading the Bible, particularly Genesis 1 through 11. Otherwise, Christians, in particular conservative Christians, are totally fine with science and have no other problems fundamentally with science other than evolution. Is that true or false? That's probably false. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's I think it's true, but I'm gonna gonna I think it's true. I think it's true, but I'm gonna change my opinion based on what you say because you know. Okay. (laughs) So tell tell Um, me. Yeah. So I think there's. I mean, I think you might be mostly true. I think that there's some truth to what you're saying. I actually think this idea that um, conservative or evangelical or even fundamentalist Christians reject wholesale science is completely untrue in, in large part because what, what they're fighting against, they're trying to back it up with a different kind of science. So they're not rejecting science so much mm. as a particular kind of science. I see. So uh, when you have people who are saying, you know, it, it conflicts with Genesis, they're also then trying to give you creationist science Right. So they're right. actually providing an alternative science to you. They're not saying this is the Bible and that's science and they're split. They're actually saying my Bible f- funds a different kind of science. And here's the few scientists I can point to who agree with that proposition. I see. So like right thinking science would give you the biblical mm-hmm. answer or something like that. Yeah. So when you're in a, a clinical setting, um, what kind of scenarios come up wherein you would have this conversation. I mean, I know you've done a lot of really excellent writing on the topic. Does this come up in your everyday life when you're in clinical settings? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I should say that, so part of my job at Michigan State is I work in our hospitals as a clinical ethics consultant. So I get called when physicians or nurses or any anyone in the hospital is feeling like there's some sort of ethical dilemma happening. And that can mean different things to different people. And I'm sort of down to explore any of those um, ideas. But I think something that comes up all the time is that we have a patient population 
that is always more religious than our clinicians. Hmm. Um, especially physicians tend to not be as religious as the general public. And so you'll have patients come in and say, no, I don't accept that. I'm waiting on a miracle. Mm. And you can't take my miracle away from me. So I'm going to ask for the most aggressive treatment possible. Or they'll say that particular treatment goes against my religion and I reject it even if it would save my life. So those are kind of the two realms where either I want really aggressive treatment um, because of my religious beliefs or I want no treatment because of my religious beliefs. And both of those can be confusing and morally distressing to healthcare providers. Wow. That is really fascinating because I think that it makes me, based on your earlier comments, want to ask a chicken or the egg question, which is what came first? The idea that people who enter into medicine are less religious, like that's their natural orientation, or this sort of um, you, this sort of phony history that these two, that there are these two mythical ideological things that are clashing, like this great thing of science and religion, which in fact you have said, and I, you know, I've experienced this with students a lot too. They'll say like, you know, Galileo is the one who gets used as an example of like, oh, you know, like religion was trying to bring him down. I'm like, wait a second. It's a little more complicated than that. But so it, it's fascinating, this idea that that there, I, I just wonder which comes first, like which drives that that narrative first. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? That's a great question. I mean, so I teach med students and even med students, it's not like we stamp the religion out of them. They right? come in with <laughs> either being religious or not. And they seem to not be converted either way. So if they come in with strong religious beliefs, it's not like we, you know, by the end, they don't have them anymore. That That's actually pretty rare. Um, but actually, the majority of them would say that they're agnostic or atheist. Mm. So it might happen sooner than when I'm getting to them. Yeah. So I don't know if it's, you know, that in their, you know, previous education that they, it just attracts people who are not religious. I, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a good question. That's probably an empirical question somebody could answer. Yeah. I know, Brian, you've had a question. You have a big question. Oh, I do. I do. This is something I've been, I've been like waiting my whole life to talk to a real bioethicist about this question. And now here I am and I'm freezing. Okay, here we go. So one, one bioethics case that really, I think riveted our country, but I remember so vividly from being a younger person was the Terry Schiavo case. Terry Schiavo, if I remember correctly, was a woman who was in a state where she really couldn't move, couldn't communicate and was being, I don't know if you'd say like kept alive by machines and, and medical devices and things like that. And there was this debate, like her husband thought that that the humane thing to do, or I'm not sure how to put it, would be to, you know, let her end her life, to take her off of that life support. While other people, in particular, I remember a very conservative, strong Christian crowd said, no, life is the value here. I guess without knowing, without being smart enough to know, um, what should have happened or what the implications are. I always thought this one thing was weird. And I guess this is the question I'm asking you. I never saw Christians getting up in arms asking whether we should have ever invented devices like that to begin with that keep people alive artificially. And I guess this goes back to my my little joke question about, about do Christians only care about evolution? The whole approach just seems not to be very thoughtful. It's just like, we just take a flashpoint or something that really just offends us. And then suddenly it's like, no, but nobody thought, nobody thought whether it was okay with God, whether we should have like artificial lungs or whether a machine should breathe for someone. I don't see a lot of like theological reflection about that. And so to me, that's really disappointing and mars that whole debate because there's this other whole world here. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? And could you talk about it in any way you want? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right that there isn't enough 
deep theological reflection on the technologies that we build and what their implications will be. I think some of that changes now, like when you enter genetics debates, like are we changing the human genome? Is that playing God? That's sort of a common phrase that you'll hear. Um, but you're right, at the time in which things like ventilators and artificial hydration and nutrition, so feeding tubes were being invented, I don't think that there was a lot of question that this was a good. Mm. And in part because the theologians... Um, who were writing and thinking at that time really did think that these were a good. A lot of these were technologies invented around World War II, um, as as much of medical technology is. It's sort of a wartime effort. Mm. Um, And I think that there was a general consensus, if you were a theologian or a chaplain on the battlefield watching people die, that anything that can keep them alive is a good. Um, And I don't think that when we built most of these technologies, we anticipated that they'd be used the way they are now. So ventilators were meant for people who were going to stop breathing, but we imagined they could start again, right? Mm. So it was a bridging technology, much like a feeding tube. We didn't imagine that we would be putting feeding tubes in people at the very end of their life when maybe they can't even absorb nutrition anymore. So that's not really why they were invented. And so there wasn't as much qualm at the beginning of these um, technologies, but now we're sort of pushing them and pushing them and suddenly we're at a point where people at the very end of their lives are getting just incredible amounts of medical technology put into them. And that really raises some questions about when is enough enough. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I've got one question for you that I've been thinking about lately, which is we've talked a little bit about, um, and kind of a running theme in the podcast is the difference between like experts and then lay people. Um, if there's one thing, I mean, I know that you get into these clinical settings where you're with people in in a very critical moment of their lives, and it's probably hard to be clear-headed about things when it's someone that you love, like in the Terry Schiavo um, scenario. So if there's one thing that you would love for the scientists, being in this case the medical doctors, and the lay people, I would guess like the families and the, the patients that are in this scenario, if there's one thing that you would like for these two groups to have thought out ahead of time (laughs) in terms of what they would, you know, like their ideal interactions with one another, what would that be? That's a great question. So I'll first say I'm a big advocate of like talking with your loved ones about things that you might want if you were to ever become seriously ill. Mm. So I think a lot of times I wouldn't need to be called as the ethicist if these conversations had been had ahead of time. So it's, it's the case that you know, this person may or may not be dying, or they're maybe in a coma, or they're maybe in a persistent vegetative state like Terry Schiavo was. And unless somebody's had a conversation, the family is being asked by our physicians to make choices about what we should do. And they have no idea, right? Like, and the physicians aren't, they're often not helping because what they're saying is so hard to understand. So physicians, like all scientists, have this kind of really particular expertise knowledge. And that's great. We need them to have that. But what they don't get as much training in is how to talk like a regular person. Mm. Right. So they sort of forget sometimes that other people don't understand all the words that they're using. So I'm often called to sit in a room with a family and a physician and just act as the translator between them. Wow. I know enough medical terminology to sort of be able to say, I think what he's saying is this, is that right, doctor? Because a lot of families won't even ask they'll get confused and, and they won't feel, they'll feel embarrassed. Right. So I'll sort of have to translate. So what I would tell the families is just keep asking the questions and keep asking until you really understand what the doctor's saying. 
have those conversations ahead of time. And for our docs, I mean, learning how to just talk like a regular person again, to remember that this is a human being in front of you and not like a scientific object. Um, and that you need to bring all of your humanity into what you're doing. Okay. I have one last question related to that. Cause I know that your research has worked. You've done a little bit of work on how physicians or the medical community can learn to look at the whole person a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit about how in your work, I'm thinking about um, imaging and imagining illness, how physicians can best do that in the future? Sure. Yeah. So my book is about, um, it's about MRIs, which is a weird sort of topic to bring in the whole person, but um, so about how medical imaging technology gets presented to patients. So you might be sitting with your doctor and they show you this scan and they say, here is your disease. And, you know, they might diagnose you that way, which can be really jarring. And I can't interpret, you know, most medical imaging. It takes quite a bit of, you know, expertise to do that. Um, so you have, so the book is sort of getting at, you know, what is the patient being presented? How is the doctor presenting it? And then how might that patient view those images differently. And so I do interpretive work with other people about um, ways in which other domains might sort of see those kinds of images and, and learn to absorb them into their own perception of who they are. And so I think uh, what the physicians can do to help that is to be really sensitive to, you know, both what it means to diagnose somebody with, you know, a, a trauma or a chronic illness, um, and then how to sort of look at images with them much like they need to learn how to explain their medical language a little bit more simply, they need to learn how to show people how to interpret medical imaging as well. What's the, uh, what's the hottest issue in bioethics right now that just sends the hearts <laughs> of bioethicists aflutter <laughs> with controversy? Like, what's the topic of the day? Well, there's a couple. So obviously, physician-assisted suicide or physician aid in dying it's 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 sort of like the abortion debate. What you call it oh, tips right. your hand to what side you're on. I see. So if you say physician assisted suicide, you're probably against it. If you say physician aid in dying, um, you're probably for it. That's not universally true, but that tends to be how it falls out. So more and more states, of course, are um, adopting legislation. All of Canada just adopted it, um, and it's very controversial. It's a I think. That there's a tipping point where Americans are now maybe a little bit more for it, but it's it's still quite divided. Before we go, I want to say uh, with regard to your book that I had an MRI one time and it was the most terrifying experience of my life. I'm going to read your book though. Maybe it'll help cure me of my memory. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Stahl. We really appreciate your expertise and, and the way that you explain to us lay people um, a lot of the current issues surrounding the relationship between people who uh, practice science and religionists. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Stahl. Wow, that was really a great conversation with Dr. Stahl. Again, as is a theme when I reflect on our interviews, I just I just love hearing people who know what they talk know what they're talking about talk. Yeah, you know, one thing that I thought was really um, a transferable conversation was when she was talking about how scientists in in this case medical doctors um, can learn about communicating their ideas to lay audiences. I oh, think that religion yeah. scholars could really really benefit from that. Well, there's <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean insert any field 
that, right. that you want there. I think the paradox is kind of built into it though. And it's a paradox. Actually, I was just discussing this with a group of people with regards to teaching and scholarship and like for professors, like how, how important is scholarship anymore? Do we really need it? And so on. And, and here's what I think the paradox is. And it'll kind of like always be there. And it's, and it's an argument in favor of people talking to each other and learning, which is namely the paradox specifically as follows. <laughs> Drum roll. Drum roll, please. <laughs> In order to like be an expert at something, you just have to know a lot. You right? have to really get in the weeds. You have to get in the muck. You have to put on the old timey diver suit and that big brass looking helmet thing. And you have to go <laughs> down into the depths of the trench. Yeah. And to do that, that takes a certain mentality. That takes a certain kind of dedication. It, you know, I remember, I don't know if you have any have any memories of like feelings or just the way your body felt or your mind, like when you were in the depth of your PhD program, like, oh, yeah, just the way like my whole body was just like, <laughs> just yeah. like tense. And I mean, it's intense. And there were things I knew then. I mean, I've already forgotten so much in the in the seven or eight years since I finished, you know, my own PhD that but I can remember what it felt like. And I think that to be a specialist, to really know things to really have that deep perspective requires that you go to this bizarre place. It's almost like going native, you know, deep right. into the heart of this wilderness of knowledge. And then once you've kind of gone native into that, it's hard to, it's almost like culture shock to try to come back out. But we need people, right, who go down deep into that trench who know we need that. Like we need scientists who can actually figure out what is a molecule or something like sciencey. But yeah, so you put, like how how then to talk about it? You know, that's hard to do. Yeah. You know, I'm reflecting on my own academic journey as well. And I was thinking there's kind of a joke, at least in religious studies. I don't know if biblical studies, you guys have this joke too, but this idea that you'll never know as much as you know when you're um studying for your exams. Oh, totally. Like the moment where you go in to take your qualifying exam is is that moment you know more than you'll ever know again. Yeah. Which there's probably some truth to that. Um, but I do think that in in many ways, the idea of like all the technical language and the jargon that you use, in some ways, I mean, it is off-putting to people who don't use that. But in some ways, it's a coping mechanism, right? Because you're just trying to like catalog all this information. And so you use technical language as a shorthand, but then you sort of forget you know, what kinds of words <laughs> right. are, just don't have any meaning to anyone who's outside of this really, really tiny subculture that you're in. Right. But I think that one thing about especially medical technology, that kind of science and religion is that both of those things, they intersect with the human experience mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you just never know when you or someone you love is going to be in a scenario wherein you're going to be having to learn this crazy vocabulary of right. all of these things. And so it's it really is a critical, you know, human need in both in both religious studies and right. in, in medical science. I continue to be fascinated just by the idea of like how much technology, how much science informs and enables our lives and how little most of us have thought about the ethics of it all or whether it's okay. I yes. mean, this is why this is why I'm just obsessed with thinking about, you know, do do certain kinds of Christians care about anything except for evolution because it's like we're just busy people, you know? Life is sure. hard. Hard you to raise kids. So can only brain. fit so much into your day. Yeah. This is why Leah doesn't do professional LARPing, for example. Because right, you know. Does, does anyone have time for live action periphery. role playing? You know, as, as a busy mom, you just, you can't do that kind I of stuff. I would if I could. You, she would if she could, okay? she's <laughs> You've heard it here. But, you know, like, I, I was there like deep Christian reflection about the television? Or about right. whether or not the internet was okay? It's like we all kind of come after the fact. I guess this is my beef about like sort of like 
people who get really up in arms about evolution, you know, and it's fine. We can't litigate the evolution case here, obviously, but it's like, where were you on XYZ issue? Where were you on this issue? Are you just like a critic of science in all kinds? Or is it just this one thing that someone told you was incompatible with the way that you read the Bible? Is it just anything? Right. Is it, you know, how about, how about this? How about that? I mean, just fill in all the examples. I mean, it's so numerous, right? Like, is social yeah. media okay? Is a TV okay? What about what about if an automobile has actually hurt communities because it means now that instead of staying connected to our neighbors for barn raisings, we now commute across to work in factories, which are dehumanizing. It's like I hear nothing. I, I've never heard a word of 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 theological speculation, philosophy from anyone on any of those topics. But suddenly it's like this one thing comes up and it's like, oh, well, there's a, you know, here's the problem. Well, and I think one of the consequences to that is that you cede some of the authority and the, the just the conversation power to the sciences, yes. ironically. So yes. what happens is, what you know, saying. you have parents who are concerned about their children mm-hmm. and screen time, which is a super valid concern. But the only way of, of verbalizing that is not like, this is a problem with the human person mm-hmm. that theological reflection could inform or or biblical study or something like right. that. But instead, it's like psychologists say. And so then you have this duke it out conversation about, well, certain psychologists say this is good, certain psychologists or, or whatever, sociologists or something like that. And so it actually sort of seeds territory mm-hmm. outside of, you know, the, the conversation about like what is good for the human person. And it's interesting because a lot of the young people that we that were profiled in um science fair yeah a lot of them come i mean it's kind of in the background but they come from religious backgrounds yeah. right like they they don't really talk it's not a prominent right. theme in the documentary but they sort of mention you can um, tell that the bangladeshi family is muslim i think they do mention that explicitly they do yeah and then the um because muslims have a great muslims Brazil. have a great history with science right back yeah back to the middle ages i mean so there's yeah. there's a great tradition there's there there's precedent yeah. for it and and same thing with um like the the young woman, I think her family is Christian from um, Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was so, explicit too. Yeah, because yeah. so the mom like, was praying for her and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and and yet what you see in the film, and probably this is the the storytelling power of the the documentary makers, but is this amazing optimism about science and like solving the world's problems, but very little conversation about what the responsibility of these young people and the conversation that they're entering into from a religious, you know, perspective. Right. There's no, there's no philosophy there. There's no like, you know, theology, whatever kind of ecumenical pan religious theology of science. It's just whatever new thing you could do would be better than another thing, I guess. This is where somebody like a bioethicist would come in or somebody who studies the history of science or something like that. To say, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Right. Do you, do you think, do you think fundamentally science and religion are ultimately distinguishable or do you think there are two, there are two approaches that rely on the same kinds of data to get to their their chosen ends. Well, I mean, I actually really appreciated what Dr. Stahl brought up, which is this idea that, um, and, and really what I liked about it is I was like, oh, this is a historian's argument, which is to say that, that creating this idea of something called science that has this this one trajectory and something called religion that has its other trajectory is really just a fabrication. So mm. there are, you know, humans that are doing things <laughs> and just like any other aspect of of the human experience, you can't, you know, completely separate 
one thing from another. So it's like I I do religious studies, but there are often times where I consult social sciences or just my own personal experience or whatever in my research. So I'm never just doing one thing at a time. Um, so that makes sense if you – that's a micro level. Makes sense if you put it on a macro right. scale. What about you? What do you well, think? Well, yeah. I mean there are different ways of even thinking about that question. So you took it in one direction. Like I was – I'm thinking too like – I mean our – so say you want to find out about the world through, quote, religion, like reified as like a concept. Like maybe that's already presuming certain things that are just actually impossible. I guess that's what you're saying. Like there's actually yeah, no way yeah. to do that. But, but I think science science as a discipline very much considers itself that way. Like mm-hmm. it can take things in a set apart way and can test them. I mean, I think one classic thing that people would always say, and I mean, I wonder if, if you think that this is true for the way that you think about about science or, or Christianity or anything like that, which is, okay, science has a hypothesis, you know, works up to a hypothesis and tests it. And if it turns out to be wrong, you jettison it. If new data and evidence comes up, you change what right. you believe. Like the traditional empirical structure. Of, right. Yeah. You, talk, you think about any major religious group, like say the Catholic church or, you know, I don't know, you know, Sunni Islam. Like, is there some new data that's going to come up that's actually going to change a core doctrine? And what would that even look like? And is it even theoretically possible for that to happen from the get-go? And if it's not, okay, now we are talking about two very different approaches to the world. One in which new data can actually change fundamental things and the other in which it cannot. Although you could say that, no, the, there is data. It's just a different kind of data in the religious sphere. But then I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, is the data that religious people consider data the same kind of data that people who do science consider data? Well, I love that question because um, in something that Do- Dr. Stahl mentioned was about kind of the interchange between scientific ways of knowing or empirical, I think is usually what people mean when they're talking about that. And traditional, in in the case of what um, Dr. Stahl was talking about, mostly Christian ways of knowing, and that you can't really, it's really hard to parse those things out. Um, something that she said when she talked about how the empirical method in many ways imitated ancient Christian ideas about knowing. So mm. it was like, um, it, you know, the empirical method the scientific, you know, the quote unquote scientific method employs this idea that you have to have a cloud of witnesses right. <laughs> that validate, you yes, know? So yes. I was like, oh, in some ways it's sort of both. And like, there are these um, two, it, it, we think of them as distinct now, and it probably has to do with our modern ideas about secularism. But in some ways, those two communities are just, they've always been working together. They'll always continue to work together. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and and I did have one um, great church history professor who said, listen, the only real problem for Christians, like, at the end of the day, is if somebody, like, it, and he was talking about the only empirical problem that would ever happen, is if somebody found and validated a box of bones that said, here lies the bones of Jesus Christ. Like, right. that's the only thing that would ever, like, piece of evidence that would ever, like, upend the whole thing. And then, of course, you know, you'd have to ask, like, how do you prove that? But his point was basically, it is a different way of knowing. What do yeah. you think? Like, as a biblical scholar, how do you reflect on that? Well, one of my greatest, like, sort of, like, thoughts that I think in terms of data and so on is, like, what would happen if we made contact with UFOs? Um, and, and what I if, hope that happens. And what if the aliens came out of the craft and said, and we got to talking as as we would. As we, of course. Let's say they let's say they learned our language and so on. We, we would do an years. episode with them, us specifically. And, and and let's say they were friendly. Let's say they were smart and they were kind of a little mean, but they were ultimately not going to kill us. And 
we kind of got far enough in the conversation, deep enough, that third cup of coffee, et cetera. Right. And the aliens, and, and it, it turns out that they just, they reveal to us a world of knowledge that is like, to say that it is like beyond us would be not adequate. Like okay. just some, and it's like they're able to show through like devices and quick trips that we could, you know, and they just show us and we're like, whoa, like it's just, it's out of our, it's going to change human history forever. <laughs> and let's say that they say, after all these conversations, they come out and they're like, yeah, and by the way, um, on the topic of arts and culture and leisure and sociology and religion, we've noticed that you people have this thing called religion and we're here to tell you, by the way, all of it is fake. There's no such thing as any of this. And we know this and they give us some like mind boggling. I mean, that would be a big problem, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But, but basically that's saying like better science would do that. Well, I'm just saying if they said that, what would we, what would we say? We'd be like, oh, no, yeah. we believe in our stuff and you don't know, you know, people would say it was demonic probably. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's where like the what exactly what you brought up earlier, which is the idea that there are different ways of knowing. Right. Um. Th- so knowing through like to use the old timey Wesleyan idea, like that your heart is strangely warmed, yes. you know, by something. I think, yes. I think, um, points to or or just hints at this idea that there are like different ways of experiencing and knowing the world. You know, I think it'd be really interesting to find out, but I will say that um, as a teacher and then way back as a student, I think that there are some folks who are raised in certain types of religious backgrounds who that's what like the Academy feels like to them. Mm-hmm. I think, right. you know, they're, they're raised with yes, a, a very, that's a great you know, like they're yeah. raised with a really, really, very specific idea mm-hmm. of what constitutes right knowledge in yeah. in the Christian faith. I'm thinking specifically of right. people who come from really um, structured fundamentalist backgrounds. And so then when they hear something like very foundational historical critical criticism right. of, say, did Solomon's temple exist yeah, or yeah, yeah. you know something like that? And then it's like, well, there's no credible evidence to suggest the Exodus narrative and whatever, right. no archaeological evidence. That's like- We become the alien. Over. We're the aliens. In the moment. Yeah. Yes, I see it. Oh, it's a brilliant analogy. Which makes me sad, actually, because um, I don't think that that's the only way of experiencing like right. knowledge. Well, one of my professors at Har- somebody that that taught John Levinson at Harvard Divinity School, you know, I remember him saying, or maybe it was in one of his writings, or maybe I heard him say it. Maybe it was both. But, you know, talking about the historical critical method, which is kind of like the humanities or biblical studies version of the scientific Science method. Let's the Bible. Say. Yeah, yeah. I you know, kind of like e- examining right. something historically and linguistically and archaeologically and, you know, looking at the historical context as the primary site of meaning. He said basically, well, the historical critical method can't tell you why you should use the historical critical method or can't make a claim that the historical critical method is the best method. That's valuable. Or should even be used. So yeah. I wonder if you could flip that, like the scientific method for all it can show us, this power can't actually tell us whether it should ever be used or for what. That's really helpful. Limited scope. I'd, l- I'd, I'd be interested later, though, to hear somebody who's, you know, really into a question like that and who might even say, oh, no, it can tell us. Yeah, but that'd how? be interesting. I'd like to know how. Next guest. Questions floating out there. Time for the Kitsch Corner. Time for the Kitsch Corner. We're working on it. We left ourselves very little time for the Kitsch Corner because we just were prattling on and on about science. I know, which 
something that neither of us know a lot about. Well, that's the Why key, that really. Stop us? That's the key is knowing and not knowing things. Uh-huh. But you suggested a kitsch. Um, uh, this this is the kitsch corner, the time where we talk about some aspect of Christian kitsch culture. If we can find it, mm-hmm. f- you know, if we can find one. Yeah, and you had a really great idea for today's kitsch corner topic slash subject. Do you want to talk about it? Well, maybe the the most the the piece of Christian science kitsch that comes to mind most readily is the Creation Science Museum. Ah, or the yes. Creation Museum. Uh, I think it's just called the Creation Museum. Um, and it's in, um, where is this place? In in Petersburg, Kentucky. I think it's been- We this, gotta go, one of these We gotta days. go. So we're not there, so we have to be clear. We're not actually at the Creation Museum and neither of us have been there. We are surfing their website, however, which is the best- Best, best way to know. Get. Yeah, have you have you surfed anything? Did you see anything that's fascinating? So the Creation Museum, by the way, we're not again, we're not here to like litigate creation versus evolution or anything like that. But uh, you know, this is part of like what Dr. Stahl was talking about in terms of you know when I when I asked her that question about about evolution and do Christians care about science and she said false. The statement is false because really what Christians have done is come up with alternate kinds of science. And I think the Creation Museum is one great example of a kind of a grand attempt at a rebuttal to Darwinian evolution in this museum, right? That's what this is. Yeah, so I'm really, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on, I think that this is something that hits closer to home for you as an instructor. Yeah. Because you teach on, so the Christian Museum is basically a huge structure around just the ideas of how to interpret Genesis correctly, right? Right. Well, that's why, and that was why I'm still obsessed with my question to to Dr. Stahl. I'm still, I'm still hanging up on it because it's like, <laughs> it's, I think at a heart, and it's, maybe it's because I'm a biblical scholar. I'm just, I deal with people for whom this is the core of it. Right. It's about the book of Genesis in particular. It's about in particular, the first fourth of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapters one and two, particularly about reading strategies. And so really it becomes a question of we might we might call hermeneutics or reading strategy, which leads me to one thing about this website that I've just found. Maybe you can queue up something to talk yeah, about yeah. as well. I've got um, one thing. So they've got a little bit of a, a kind of a section on Lucy the ape. So this oh, Lucy is okay. like one of the kind of foundational skeletons of 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 human evolutionary theory in terms of like, you know, various kinds like of between the species. Between the species. Between, exactly. Okay. This kind of stuff. And and the note on the website here actually says that the Lucy exhibit is undergoing renovation and not available for viewing at this time. So glad we have this online presence. But you know, they're saying, look, we've got this bone structure here of this like primate thing. Okay. But what do we really know about it? I just want to read part of this because I think this takes us to the heart of what often the kind of journey I try to take students on just at wherever we end up to become self-aware about our reading habits and so on. Um, they've got this little panel here beneath the main Lucy thing, um, you know, saying same evidence, two different views. Even oh. though Lucy is fairly complete for a mammal fossil, 47 of 207 bones found, the bones are mostly small fragments with many pieces missing. Okay. That means scientists had to reconstruct the skeleton according to their pre-existing beliefs about the fossil as to whether Lucy was an ape, human, or ape man. So you can see where this argument's going. Uh-huh. It's kind of like a flipping this kind of, almost like a kind of like, okay, it's it's almost like a kind of pseudo-relativism. Like people only make decisions based on their pre-existing beliefs. And so science scientists who came in with a pre-existing belief that evolution was true were forced to only interpret the skeleton in this one way, which raises the question... Yeah. What are the pre-existing beliefs of the Creation Museum that lead them to do 
their, quote, science the way that they do? Well, they tell us actually flat out, if you scroll down the page, namely, God's word gives us answers. The exhibit is about Lucy the ape, but it communicates much more than that, colon. Christians need to trust God's word as their final authority. Yeah. So it's like they're telling us flat out. So what are we left with? Just a relativist battle between different people, different groups that have different pre-existing beliefs? Well, I think it's interesting that you use the word relativism because I think that's exactly the opposite of what the desired outcome of this Agreed, yes. particular No, they is. don't think that. I know. Yeah, but I, but I agree that um, categorizing it, it's interesting that they would have said, you know, like use the word belief instead of, for example, you know, they reconstruct this the skeleton based on the curvature of the bones or, right. you know, like certain other things that, you know, pieces of expertise that um, might not be, you wouldn't initially categorize as belief. Mm -hmm. So like the word even belief is a fascinating yes. choice to use. Um, and it, it, the thing that I honed in on on a different page is mm -hmm. really just the about us page where it talks okay. about um, the creation museum shows why God's infallible word rather than man's faulty assumptions, mm -hmm. I think we should, you know, you could say humanity's faulty assumptions, is the place to begin if we want to make sense of our world. So I think that that's a really, like the idea of summarizing the structure of a skeleton in terms of belief um, puts, like, it, it sort of is an attempt to put scientific knowledge or empiricism under a, a different um, umbrella, mm -hmm. I think, than how most sure. scientists imagine themselves to be, like, where they would categorize it. And I'm not even saying that that's totally wrong, because I think there's actually some really helpful um, historical work that's been done on, like, the biases that go into doing particular kinds of science, and, like, there's oh, all yeah. kinds of things about, like— Oh, no, science are, scientists are into that. Like, yeah, this claim like, of, like, total objectivity for scientists, there's no scientist who actually believes that. I, you science know, maybe totally there are objective. some places, but I think that, as a whole, most um, scientists, especially if they're thinking historically through their own discipline, would say, certainly, we have, like, biases, like— Oh, Racist, sexist biases. I think it's 100%. Into... I think science has gone to this place where every scientist acknowledges that there's human error and faulty, or there's this yeah. is always the case. So I think it's sort of making a straw man out of like what science, like people in science y type fields, right. how they would characterize yes. their own. Well, even the statement that you read, the Creation Museum shows why God's infallible word rather than man's faulty assumptions. So back to synthesizing this with the statement I was reading, it's yeah. other people who have pre existing beliefs and assumptions. There is no veil between this group and the truth and God's word. It's just like a total one-to-one, -one you know, communion. Well, what I think is interesting about that is this idea that the Bible, this is a very optimistic idea about how we would interpret the Bible, right? Like that the Bible right. is a static thing that you, like, if you interpret it, everyone's going to come to the same conclusion, which in right. the history of Christianity in America, at least, is a very common optimistic idea that gets shut down pretty quickly. Like right. people are like, right. we're only going to use the Bible. And then it's right. like, oh, bummer. Anytime you have more than one person trying to interpret the Bible, yeah. you come up with different ideas about what right. it is. So like the right. human faulty thing that applies to interpreting the Bible. As well. well, that's Christian Smith's The Bible Made Impossible. He makes this point. Like what you have is definitely clear interpretive pluralism among people who claim to believe the same thing. So you either have two choices, either what this website is calling God's infallible word is actually not a singular thing, or what you, the alternative is to accuse other people of being essentially satanic. Right. That they have actually intentionally corrupted it. But if you don't accept that other people, even like say Christians who have different views on evolution, are intentionally satanic on either side, 
you have to come to the conclusion then that in fact there are a couple of different reading options, which it seems that this website is not allowing. What do you think the payoff, you know, in terms of the kind, you know, when students come to you, because I know that this can be a really traumatic, theologically traumatic experience. And I'm not trying to downplay that at all. Yeah. It's true. It really is. What is the payoff in terms of like the the kind of um, maybe emotional security this, this view gives to your students? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. It just it depends in every case. I do know that many students come into college, let's say, and I definitely would would fit into this category as well, who have been given, for better or for worse, I mean, these things can be good and they can also be difficult. And I ultimately think for some students, this is really difficult. They're given a burden, let's say, by their family. And I think- To uphold an orthodoxy. Yes. And I think one script that gets told a lot, and maybe no one would quite put it this way, is like, you know, Uncle Frank or somebody at the Thanksgiving table says, I heard you're going off to that liberal college. Turns out it's actually like a really conservative Christian college. Right. Heard you're going off to that liberal college. Um, You know, you can believe whatever you want about blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Suddenly now he's Southern. You can believe whatever you want. (laughs) Well, this is in Kentucky. (laughs) You know, but- do not believe, never believe in evolution. Even this language of belief, I mean, it already confuses kind of like the way scientists, like you were pointing out earlier, the way that they want to work. Yeah. Or like, I I used to see this bumper sticker at a church I used to attend and the bumper sticker said, Darwin's last words, colon, quote, I was wrong, unquote. (laughs) Which I always thought that was so funny because it's like, well, if even if Darwin did say that, which by the way, that's not a thing, that that's, it's a fake quote. (laughs) Even if he did say that, it doesn't mean anything for the theory, but it goes to show the way that there are two kind of like intellectual paradigms clashing Uh here. And this is where I think, you know, religion and science, there are some different assumptions. Like the assumption there, the religious assumption of that bumper sticker was to say that if Darwin had recanted, the whole thing is meaningless because this is ultimately about personalities and whom you believe. Whereas if you think of like Jesus of Nazareth being on the cross and recanting, saying, yeah, all that stuff I said, I don't believe it actually, I was wrong. Like that, now that's, a, that you know. That'd be a, like a deal breaker. That'd be a deal breaker, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> but almost like taking those two figures, like Jesus and Darwin, and like putting them on the same, like, whom do you believe? Like, which one's, which one's personal appeal? Whereas science isn't really about the flawed, like, moral character of the messenger or anything like that, but rather, or I guess it could be um, in certain cases, but, but rather there are facts and there are bones and there are fossils. And this is what the Creation Museum is trying to do, show us the, the fossils in a new way. You know, yeah, you know, I think what Dr. Stahl, something that Dr. Stahl brought up, um, it brought into our conversation is this idea that there are lots of different ways that people within the Christian tradition have approached science. Like I'm thinking about this one guy, um, William James, who's a yeah. um, early 20th century mm-hmm. kind of theorist about religion and religious experience. He advocated, um, he was super open to the idea that religious experience is a real thing, like that people have, you know, these mystical experiences and that they ought to be studied empirically. So he had this Mm -hmm. idea, like a really optimistic idea and really open, actually. I think even the most like staunch supporters of the Creation Museum would, would be impressed with the openness that somebody like he had, but he was not really big into making um, firm statements because he was an empiricist. So he right. thought that there was always something more that we could be learning about something. And I think that that's maybe one of the fundamental clashes between the style of of Christian um, ideology that creates something like the Creation Museum and other styles of Christian like em- like epistemology, ways of knowing, is this idea that there is one answer that we can know for all time. Right. And, 
and not just one. There are many answers. So I th- I agree that it sets up a kind of um, it it ends up being a, a pretty heavy load for students who come in. You know, you're 18. You don't know <laughs> a lot of things. That's a lot for someone to try and uphold yeah. when you're being you know introduced to lots of different things all at once. So well, you know, and I'm ultimately. I'm an emotional person. You know, I kind of operate from my gut, I think, a lot of times. A lot of us are. I'm in the feeling zone. And I I think that's just where I gravitate. Like, I'm not super heady that way. And so for me, dealing with students, my, always my concern is never to, like, sort out somebody's views on what the facts are, even though I do that all the time. But, you know, I, um, you know, because of my own experiences in some cases, in some cases not, to me, it's been more worthwhile to just kind of like emotionally be with people and kind of let some things wash over us together as maybe touchy-feely as that sounds. That is ultimately what I do. Um, well, you know, I think it's human. Like it's it's kind to let people be understood and feel understood. Yeah, agreed. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. That's what we're still calling our listeners, weirdos? Yup. I like it. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Bex Joy, and executive produced by Troy Wellstead. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum, and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout-out to Roger Nam and to the Kern Foundation for sponsoring the season, and to Trigger the Studio Dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.